So the story is that I learned a lesson in marriage a couple years ago that I probably should have learned before marriage, to be honest. But I, I cannot remember the details. I, all I remember are faces, okay? But I remember there was something that I was supposed to do outside. And it took me days, you know, like all husbands, at least I'm telling myself that's what all husbands do. It took me days and I finally got to it and I finally did it. But my, I remember Felicia asked me to do something. I went outside, I did it, and I came back inside and I told her, hey, I did what you asked, come look at it. And she got, I, all I remember is she got out there and I saw her face. And her face told me I did not do what she asked. It was one of those faces like, you're dumb, you're not doing this right. Like, it was one of those looks. I call it the widower look, but we won't get into that. But it was one of those where, like, she just wasn't happy with it, right? And so I looked at her, and I said, you asked me to do this, and she's like, yeah, you're saying the right words, but you're not, you didn't do what I meant. And so the lesson that I learned, and I use it, I use it with Felicia, with my job, I use it all the time now. Anytime somebody asks me something, I repeat it back to them and say, this is what you mean for me to do, right? And so I want to make sure because there was a disconnect in communication. Like the words you say did not match what I understood, right? And again, I, we tried all week to remember what it was I did, and I cannot remember. But so there was that miscommunication where the words that you said is not what you understood. And so that's what I want to do today is because the parable, we're going to look at a parable and it's pretty short. It's pretty simple. And we probably know the words and we're used to the words, but I just want to get our understanding at the right spot, right? And kind of bring us back to that. So if you will, we'll be going to uh, Luke Oh, sorry, there we go. Yeah, Luke 18, and we'll start in verse 9. It's a short parable. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So uh, we'll start in verse 9, and we'll read through it real quick. It says, he, talking about Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so that's a short parable. Um, and remember, so Jesus, he tells parables to try to teach us something through all that. So in this parable, there are two characters that are important to clearly identify who they are and have a good understanding of what type of people they are. So first, we have the Pharisee. So a lot of times in church, we kind of refer to the Pharisees as the bad guys or the villains, right? Because we've probably read or heard the Bible stories where they accused Jesus and kind of led to Jesus's journey to the cross, right? But if we have that concept in our minds, it kind of taints the point that Jesus is trying to make to his immediate audience because 
we know in hindsight that's what the Pharisees were. But whenever he referred to Pharisees, it was a little different. So in Jesus' time and in the culture that they were in, the Pharisees were honestly widely respected. They were a group of people who separated themselves from the ordinary people, and they were singularly, singularly devoted to living a righteous life is what they were doing. They focused on obeying the law, and they were meticulous in what they did every day to have a spiritual life. So that's what they focused on. So because of that, they were highly regarded, and they were considered the spiritual leaders of the entire nation, okay? So they had this zealous obedience for God. And so when Jesus starts talking about the Pharisee in this story, he's not referring to what we would understand as bad guys. We know that. But what he would be referring to are these respected guys. They are good dudes. They know their stuff about scripture. They are respected, right? Now, again, we know that the downside of that, right? They were overly zealous, and they thought living out the law was more important than their relationship with God. But overall, in that immediate culture, they were respected people, okay? So that's important because whenever he says the Pharisee walked into the temple, we need to understand that immediately that's not a bad guy. That's a respected guy who knows scripture, and that helps our understanding a little bit. So we'll keep that in mind. Also, what is a tax collector, all right? Because in our culture, we don't know what a tax collector is like they did, right? So first, in our culture, we don't have a great understanding of like community, like the ethnic identity that they did. So their culture was based on who they were. They were Jewish. That was important. That meant a lot to them, okay? So whenever you're living in Israel and you are part of that community, that is a big part of who you are. And so in this time, when Jesus was alive, Rome had come and taken over Israel, right? And they had conquered the people. And what they did whenever they conquered people is they would hire somebody from that country to take the like oppressive tax from them. And these people would get rich off of the commissions that they took. And so they would charge more and more because it helped them get rich and they were allowed to, nobody could stop them. And so the Jewish community, because it's somebody from their family, from their village, from their town, they took that as total, a total violation against who they were. And so they were viewed with disgust. They were viewed as total hated traitors. These, like, in, not in the slightest were they liked, okay? It meant something really terrible for you to betray your community, who you were, to go and do this for your own gain, right? And so that's important whenever Jesus mentions the tax collector coming in. We don't have that immediate, like, oh, who in the world is that? Why is he here? We don't have that immediate emotion, whereas they would have. They would have understood, oh, that guy is terrible. So it's important to remember those as we remember Jesus talking about these people coming in. And so we'll remember that the Pharisees are respected leaders and the tax collectors are hated traitors. So uh, what Jesus says here would completely shock his listeners. What he tells them would be totally against what they would think would be true. And so this really drives home the important heavy lessons that he's trying to give here. So let's look at the Pharisee first. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, 
and I give tithes of all that I get. And so for me personally, the very first impression that I get that I get from this Pharisee is that he has a very high opinion of himself, right? He thinks that he is just so great. He thanks God that he's not like other people. And then he lists out all the good things that he's done. And we're told at the beginning of the parable why he's rejected. Because at the very beginning, it says that it was for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so you can see immediately, this guy is definitely trusting himself and all the good things that he is. He says, I'm not bad like all these other guys. Just look at all this stuff that I do. Look at all these great things that I do. I am a godly person. I'm fasting, I'm tithing, I'm not like all these other people. And so here we can understand the Pharisee represents anyone who seeks salvation through their own effort. Anyone who thinks they can make themselves look better to God, right? And this is, uh, this is all the people that think they have the power to live a life that pleases God without any help, all right? And that's what he's representing. He trusted that through his own works, that God would be reconciled to him, that God would be pleased with the good things that he was doing. And that is a wicked confidence in ourselves, right? There's no way we can live a life that will be acceptable to God without the help of Christ. There's no way. And Paul talks about that directly. Uh, in Philippians, he says, in Philippians 4, 4 through 6, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was a strong follower of the law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? In Galatians, it also says that Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries, more zealous for his ancestral traditions. So Paul was doing all the right things. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. He could claim all these things. Circumcised on the eighth day, that was in the law. He was not just of Israel, he was of Benjamin, one of the like, best viewed tribes that there were. And he followed the law. And so he could claim all that. He said, if you think you're good, I can claim I'm even better. And, but then he goes on to say, in the verses right after in 7 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ or that I'm making Christ. So Paul says he counts all that stuff as loss. All the things that he could cling to, all the stuff that he could claim, he counts it as loss. In fact, he counts everything as loss compared to Christ. Everything else is rubbish. We would, I would, I would say nowadays, like, that's garbage. That's trash. Like, I don't care about any of that. There's no acts. There's no works. There's no good deeds that are sufficient enough to cling to, to prove ourselves to God, to be evidence for God. The only thing we can cling to is Christ, what he says here. Isaiah puts it this way. So in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, we have all become like one who is unclean. He's talking about the people of Israel. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. He says, I, I'm, I'm not gonna get into what this verse could be interpreted as because I'll let y'all do that. We'll go look at this verse, see what polluted garment could mean. 
But he says, all our good deeds are like a polluted garment. It's gross. None of that matters. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities take us away. Our sins carry us away. None of it is good enough. So in the end, the Pharisee shows us where our sin nature can take us. It can take us in that direction. We may not say it out loud. We may not pray a prayer like the Pharisee, but we all can slip into a mindset that depends on ourselves. We can all start depending on deeds as a checklist, right? So we can be like, yep, I've gone to church. Um, I've been nice to people. I haven't cussed anyone out in a long time. I've been helping out with different ministries. I'm going to Bible study. I'm helping out with VBS. I'm getting food for the food pantry, going to Bible study. I'm talking to coworkers about Christ. And we just have this checklist of all these good things that we're doing. And, and listen, all those are wonderfully great things that God calls us to do. We're supposed to do all that. But the things that the Pharisee listed were also things that God called him to do. Do you see the parallel there? He's, we're called to do good things. The Pharisee was called to do good things. But he's listing them out as evidence to have that relationship with Christ. And that's where the trouble comes in. If we let ourselves start depending on those things to reconcile ourselves to God instead of depending on Christ, that's where we fall. So what could that look like in our life? If we find ourselves not thinking about Christ's sacrifice and consciously making an effort to recognize that great gift that God has given us, that could be evidence that we're not in the right mindset, that we're just going through the motions and we have this list of things that we're doing. One thing that Pastor Mark does at every deacon's meeting, he always has a list of prayers and praise, and he might do this on prayer nights too. I'm always with the kids, so I'm not sure. So he always, one of his praises is for salvation. He always brings us back to center us that we should always be praising God for that salvation, right? And so if we go days and weeks without thanking God for his salvation or just recognizing the importance of it, we have to check ourselves. It's just that self-examination on where we're at at any given moment. Have I just been doing the work that I'm listing out or am I thinking about Christ and what he's done for me? So we can use that to look at ourselves. So the Pharisee is an example of basically what not to do. But the next character, the guy that comes up, the tax collector, tells us what we should be doing. So in verse 13, it says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here... The tax collector, he's standing far off away from the crowd, from all the other people, and he's in prayer to God. However, he doesn't bring forth all these good things that he's done. He doesn't list all the money he has and things that he could do with it. All he can do is cry out to God in desperation. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He's beating his chest. He's in anguish over his sin, right? He was acutely aware that he was not worthy to be in the presence of God. And Luke in chapter 14, it says, um, he who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so the disciple understood that sentiment. There was nothing he could do or bring or hold on to. There was no need for him to mention his money or what he could do with it. He was just broken over his sin. And he sincerely acknowledged that he was miserable and lost and he fled to the mercy of God. And I think that recognition that he shows is important. And we can tell by his words and his actions that he was sincere. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He knew he was a sinner. 
And one version of the Bible, so we've been using ESV, and one version of the Bible, that it's the NASB, it says this. It says that the tax collector proclaimed, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. And I think that idea really kicks home what it is that we can learn. It's really important because it shows that we recognize we're sinners on our own accord and that we're not just kind of grouping ourselves together as a human race. We're solely focused on what we are as sinners. And again, Paul gives evidence of thinking like this. In 1 Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of, who, of whom I am the foremost. So he's recognizing that he is the chief among sinners. And we just talked about how much good things that Paul had, right? It doesn't matter how well we think we live our lives or how many good things we can list that we've done. We're all sinners in front of a perfect and holy God. A song that I like by Jimmy Needham, anytime I talk, I'll probably mention Jimmy Needham, so sorry about that. But a song that he wrote puts it this way. He says, will our bright lights become merely night lights towards him? He's saying the big things that we do when compared to God just become night lights. They're, They're barely anything. They're nothing compared to God. It's not enough for us to cling to. The tax collector is coming before God in such a way that there's nothing he can do. He knows there's nothing he has or anything he can do will justify him to God. In fact, one of the words that he uses in this parable shows us how significant his plea is. And this is one of those things, like if you're just reading through the Bible, we probably wouldn't notice. I wouldn't notice. But as studying for it, the word merciful that he uses translates a word of the verb helixomai. Which is, so they translate it from that, which means to appease, to make a propitiation, and to make satisfaction. And the reason I wanted to bring that up, because there's only one other time in all of Scripture that that word, that specific word is used, and it's a very important one. In Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll let you know which word it is, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, talking about Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, and the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that's the type of mercy that the tax collector was calling on. He wanted that um, mercy to make things right before God. That's what propitiation means, is to make things right. So it wasn't just mercy. It was a specific type of mercy that he wanted that propitiation. He's desperate to correct his relationship with God because he knows that his sin will always make him unworthy. This type of attitude, this type of thinking is what Jesus is calling us towards, right? He explains that in the last statement of his parable. The very last verse, verse 14, it says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus tells us that the tax collector is justified, not the Pharisee. And remember, they would have been shocked by this, right? The Pharisee was the good example. He knew the law. He followed the law. And he was supposed to be a good guy. But he was not the one that was exalted. The tax collector, who was a terrible person, he was a terrible traitor to his people, he came before God in the right way, and he was the one that was exalted. If we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. So a line is drawn here between these two things 
that one, there's one way to be justified, and there's nothing we can do to add to it. And that's where the word empty-handedness comes from. We'll be, that's what I want to get at. It means we really aren't trusting ourselves. It means that we, we have to place full confidence in the undeserved goodness of God. We don't deserve anything from God, but we have to place our confidence in that goodness. And we have to learn to place our salvation on God and not on this list of things that we have for ourselves. We can't trust ourselves to get to the place where we need to be because we are sinners and there's no way for us to get there. And at the end of the day, the tax collector is the one that went home justified. The Pharisee went home and he just continued to fast and tithe, but he remained an unjustified person. So my goal in bringing this parable to our attention is for us to go home justified like the tax collector. To do that, we have to realize how broken we are. We, we have to go home understanding our brokenness and our unworthiness. But I reckon, honestly, that a lot of us are in the middle. So we can, in between the Pharisee and the tax collector, a lot of times we don't come to church and pray something like the Pharisee. We realize how ridiculous that is. We wouldn't come here, some of us probably, wouldn't come here and pray about listing all the good things that we do. That probably seems silly. But I'm guessing a lot of us, including myself, we go home and we just continue to do the good deeds, the churchy things that we're supposed to do. And again, we're supposed to do those things. So don't get me wrong. And honestly, we'll talk about that next week. But the most important thing we can do is to go home and live our lives knowing that we are the sinner. And it's only through Christ that we are justified. That's how we can be exalted, right? And I feel it's important for this reminder because that's a hard place to stay, honestly. And our humanness, we are going to struggle to stay in that spot where we consider ourselves to be miserable and lost. That's not a fun place to be. We don't, we probably think about it a little bit and then we back out and don't really think about it for a while. It's hard to stay there. But that's what we're called to do. It's difficult to keep our minds there and because we drift back to that way of thinking like the Pharisee where there's these lists of things. I know I'm broken. I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm not worthy, but here's all the things that I'm trying to do to be better. And again, that's what we're supposed to do, but we have to always recognize that we are that sinner. And so I like to use the phrase empty handed. Again, that's a phrase from Jimmy Needham to describe that approach to God. We have to approach God not with our hands grasping at all the things that we've done and trying to cling to all those good tasks that we have, but we have to come to God with empty hands, beating our chest saying, I'm broken, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to bring other than my faith in Christ. That is so important. The tax collector, he was broken over his sin and he was, there's nothing he brought to God other than his desperation. And that's so hard to stay in, but I think it's so important to recognize for us to have that in our lives. And so I really hope that we can have that idea of empty hands coming to God. And also, if you come to God with empty hands, that means you're ready to do whatever it is that God wants you to do. He can call you to do whatever. You're not clinging and holding on to other things. So if we have that mindset, which again, I know it's, I'm, I'm much more of a practical type person. I like to like, here's the steps I can do to do this and this and this. And that, this is hard to make practical because it's just in our minds. It's our mindset and how we're thinking about God and how we're thinking about approaching God and our relationship with him. But with empty hands, that's what we're supposed to do. And so 
Here, in just a second, I'll pray for us. And like I said, I, I told you it would be a little bit shorter, and I hope that's all right. But I feel like that's just an important lesson for us all to learn and just hold in our hearts as we're going throughout the week that we are thinking about that as we're living for Christ. So let's pray real quick. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the things that we have, the blessings that we may not even recognize sometimes. And God, I pray that you would just help us to have the right heart attitude as we come to you and live for you each day, that we aren't being like the Pharisee and listing out all the things that we can do and depending on those to have our relationship with you. God, I pray that we would be like the tax collector, that we would come in desperation and that we would realize that we are unworthy of everything that you've given us, but we are so thankful for what you have given us. And we are so thankful foremost for the salvation that you offer. I pray that that would take over our lives and that would just infiltrate everything that we do, that people would recognize that in us, that we just are not exalting ourselves and that we are humbling ourselves to you, God. Uh, Help us uh, be that way this week. Help us to just shine your light to the people around us and glorify you in everything that we do. And we just love you so much. Amen.